Welcome to National Vocation Fashion Week. Today, this episode is joined by Father Claude Williams, who is from New Orleans, is also from the great state of Louisiana. He is a Norbertine and has been for the last 23 years, and he's actually a pastor here in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. So welcome, Father. Thank you very much. We're very excited to have you to talk about uh, the Norbertine habit or multiple habits. You sent me so many pictures today, so we're excited <laughs> to dive into that. Tell us about the Norbertine habit whatever you want to start with, what is your experience wearing it out in the world? Each habit really kind of exhibits a different charism usually. So it's, it's part of an order. So there's kind of a uniformity between, and you sent pictures both of the priests and of the sisters. So yeah, I know it's like monastic and everything. So what can you tell us just generally speaking about the Norbertine habit? You know, our order is about 900 years old. We were founded in 1121 in France by St. Norbert in the Valley of Prémontré. And uh, that valley um, was chosen um, by St. Norbert because uh, it was kind of revealed to him as a good place to found the order. Uh, but his understanding of why it was revealed to him as a good place was because it was basically a swampy, uh, mosquito-ridden, secluded area. And he told us, uh, he told the first Norbertines, the first members of the community, um, that uh, the community should be built on the most sure um, and solid foundation, which is humility. And that's mm -hmm. why we'd be uh, founded in a valley so that we would be low uh, and um, that we might be lifted up. So that's kind of the, the place of our order. So when we were founded, uh, St. Norbert was asked about uh, the clothing, you know, because it is customary, especially at the time we were established, that members of a religious order would have the same garb, because that kind of comes from the whole idea of us having everything in common and a life of poverty so that we share not only a schedule and the same residence and we share our meals, but we also share the same outfit, so to speak. And so he says, well, um, since we seek to um, follow Christ with the scriptures as a guide, if we were to look through the Bible um, for any indication as to how we should dress, we won't see anyone wearing black or brown or gray like some other orders, but the angels of the resurrection wear white. And so just as the women who are uh, sad and uh, confused in the darkness of uh, their grief uh, after the death of Christ came to the tomb and then had the good news proclaimed to them by the angels in white. Uh, so too, we will wear white so that we can proclaim the good news of Christ risen from the dead uh, to a people who are uh, in darkness uh, today. And so that's the reason we wear white uh, habits and um, it's scriptural. So he did throw a little shade at uh, the Benedictines <laughs> by uh, pointing that out, but that, that was also customary for the time. Now we get along just swimmingly with all other orders. And so, but that was the, that was the rationale that he gave. For the white. Yeah. I think especially here in Southern California, a lot of people know a lot of the Norbertines. There's so many of y'all, um, maybe because like historically you said, it's such an um, old order. Um, so y'all just been around for a long time, but I mean, even being from Louisiana, I don't think we have Norbertines there, but I knew of the Norbertines from my time in college. So it seems like you'll have a really like flourishing vocations. We're really blessed right now. Um, and we, we don't have any communities in Louisiana, but we do have several 
uh, members from Louisiana, also from Texas, uh, my community. Actually, we I was going to are... say, yeah, in Texas, I went to a wedding in Houston and uh, they had a vocations poster and like three or four of them on the vocations poster for the for the diocese or the archdiocese was uh, Norbertine seminarians, too. Really? Or I don't know what y'all are called. Are y'all called seminarians? Yes. Yes. Seminarians. Okay. Uh, you know, we still usually are called frauders, which means brother in Latin um, for those who are um, planning to be ordained. But like our community here in Wilmington, we're five of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, three are from Texas and I'm from wow. Louisiana. So actually, um, it's a very, uh, this this house is uh, well represented with uh, men from the Gulf Coast, basically. Yep. <laughs> Gulf Coast to the West Coast. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I love that. So Father, even though you're a monastic order, you're a pastor of a church. So you, you still experience like the outside. You don't live at the Abbey. So right. what's your experience wearing the habit? like out in the world? What's, what are your encounters with people like? How do people respond to you? Well, first of all, you mentioned we're a monastic order. That's sort of true. I think if we're going to uh, be really precise, we're a canonical order. In a sense, we are monastics too, because you know, to say a community is monastic or that a person is monastic uh, comes from the word monos, which means alone or one or united um, or solitary. And so um, usually uh, when we talk about monastic orders, especially like the Benedictines and their different branches, um, in general, the emphasis is that the individual monk is alone with God in this life that they live, even if they live in community. They have a certain um, value that they place on solitude, basically having God as their, as their focus. Um, that's true for us too, but um, our title as canons, and we're canons regular, which means that uh, we follow a rule. So any, mm. you know, if you had a community clerks regular or um, canons regular, we follow a rule from regula. But we're canons, which means our names are on a list. And that comes from the uh, custom of having, especially cathedrals, but also other churches have a list of clergy who are specifically tasked with making sure that the prayers of the church are prayed in that church because churches are built um, to represent a community, but also that there might be a space for uh, prayer every single day. Basically, um, when we talk about our monastic life as canons, um, there's kind of another dynamic. It's that we are one together. In other words, it's, a, it's an expression of our unity. And that wow. comes from the chapter four of the book of Acts you know, where St. Luke basically described the life of the early Christians, that um, they were of one heart and one mind. And so um, we, Norbertines, we profess to follow the rule of St. Augustine. And at the start of that rule is this whole idea that uh, we've come to this house, whatever house we might be living in, to be of one mind and one heart on the way to God as we love God. So um, so we are monastic, but we're not, you know, but uh, and depending on which Norbertine or Benedictine you talk to or a member of a religious order, Sometimes there'll be, again, different uh, variations on how we explain what it means to be monastic. But anyway, so you asked another question, though, uh, in the mix of all that, and that is, what's my experience of wearing the habit? I would say I've been wearing the habit since, yes, 2000. And uh, overwhelmingly, I would say it's, it's positive. But I think it's also good to note that there's sometimes maybe less than positive uh, experiences. Let's say when we have a positive experience, it's usually because someone comes up to us and they identify uh, this habit or religious garb with some good memories that they have had. They find uh, their own experience for God or their search for God 
leaves them to be very open to seeing the representation. But it's also the case that, um, you know, since there have been so many religious and throughout the world um, and history, uh, some people have actually been very traumatized um, uh, by members of religious orders, um, and they really do identify the habit not so much with um, hope in God or heaven or or holiness, but maybe they identify the habit with abuse of any type. You know, it could be uh, emotional, sexual, or psychological, economic, financial abuse. There can be just a sort of um, cynicism regarding religious life. I remember once when I was in Rome, we were a group of us walking. We were about 10 walking down um, one of the major streets right by the Colosseum. And then on the opposite side of the street, walking uh, in the same direction, there was a group of religious sisters, actually. In fact, they were Servidoras, to be honest. They were the, in their blue and gray habits. Uh, we used to call them the Civil War sisters because they looked like uh, kind of the colors of the Confederacy and the Union. But anyway, um, but, but we were walking. And one of the Norbertines that I was with, um, we were all together. He says, this must be such a great witness for people to see all these religious and that we were just um, living this life. And one of the other Norbertines who was with us, he just he just stopped. He says, well, Frater, that presupposes people actually believe we do what we say we do, uh, which was a good observation because, again, you know, um, you just never know. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, just earlier today, I was at a uh, funeral for a religious sister and uh, and I was at their their mother house and most of the sisters there actually are not wearing habits in this community. Uh, there were a few who were, but most weren't. But we sang uh, that servant song. It was, uh, you know, one of the lines in the servant song actually talks about this, you know, where we um, allow ourselves to go out, not only um, being, I guess you could say a sign of hope, but also risk the, the stare, you know, the hostile stare. So depending on what someone's experience might be, uh, the interaction with the habit may not be all good. It may not be all bad. It may be somewhere in between. But maybe if there's time, I can give you maybe a couple of examples of both. So one, uh, I remember once being at a dinner with uh, a diocesan priest. I was in my habit, and this priest was in his cassock, actually. We were at a kind of a gathering of some um, really active Catholics. And um, one of the men at the table that I had known for a long time seemed to really have an issue with this priest and the cassock. It was actually getting a little bit awkward. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I'm a priest because, you know, when you're a priest, you sort of get used to awkward situations because we have to, we deal with so many people at so many different times of life that uh, it can just be the case that things are awkward and you just have to take in a deep breath and embrace the awkwardness and, and, and move through it. Well, anyway, um, long story short, um, there was some back and forth between this man and the priest. Eventually what came out is the man uh, had been abused uh, by a priest. And he said, and since our, we have a white habit, it just didn't, the, the association was not so triggering with what I was wearing as what uh, the priest was, the other, my friend. But after a while, before long, uh, there was kind of a moment of healing and reconciliation. And that man actually asked my friend, the priest, to go to confession. It was a really beautiful kind of... Um, wow. Um, interaction. But I would say, um, depending on the amount of time, sometimes people just don't have that much time. Their interaction is basically negative. First of all, pray for anyone throughout the world who's kind of maybe um, had negative experiences of religious life or uh, individual religious or communities of religious. 
um, and to just pray that you know God will be able to heal um, those wounds and 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 bring some closure and also reconciliation if possible. What I've learned over the years, because I have other stories like that, I won't share them all, but it's made me be much more sensitive to um, um, to individuals who do have a problem with the outfit with the habit because it would be easy to be offended immediately get defensive uh kind of go into an apologetics you know rant or diatribe uh but a lot of times it's better just to just kind of like listen and see what where that hurt is and uh and ask god uh to either that i can be uh an instrument of healing or at least that when the time is right um someone somehow can really help make up for that that damage so that would be some of the bad things. Now, good things, there's lots of good things that happen. Um, you know, one that's very noticeable, I mean, it's not the most noble, but it's it's definitely appreciated is when we're out uh, in public and people just pay for our groceries. Or, oh, wow. uh, that happens, you know, like that happens to law enforcement and military often when in uniform. Um, and I would say that happens a fair amount. Uh, you know, you'll be at a lunch um, and then someone has picked up the tab and often it's anonymous it's really kind of common that I'll be doing grocery shopping and then someone will just uh, say I'm covering the groceries. And so that's always appreciated. So that means people have um, been inspired and then they want to respond with generosity, um, material generosity, which is really one of the most important things we can do in life, especially when we recognize that God has blessed us, uh, we should share the blessing. It's just a really important um, thing for us to do, to say thank you, but to show our gratitude. Besides that, my experience of the habit, uh, not only the way people treat me, but I would say because I had the blessing of having a lot of religious um, sisters, in particular as teachers um, in school, some in habit, some not. My experience in elementary school and even in high school too with priests was so positive that um, I am always kind of like inspired to see habits. So it's, it's in fact, I like to tell religious sisters, especially, you know, it's like, it's really hard for me to not like a sister. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's because like <laughs> my experience growing up was just really, um, I feel it was just, it was just one blessing after the other. Blessed that my parents are very prayerful um, and set a good example of prayer, fidelity um, and, and warmth to each other and to us, uh, to my brothers and to me. But really, I think I had just so many living examples of uh, really joy-filled and gracious consecrated religious that it basically inspired my vocation and has been a continual source of inspiration. You're highlighting for me the importance of virtuous living in the church, especially by people who are, you know, visibly, there's like a visual element to your consecration, to you being set apart for God and for you kind of making this public witness, not just, you know, the day of your ordination or the day of your consecration, but you're making a public witness of your yes, um, simply by wearing what you're wearing. And uh, it's important that you live out your yes as virtuously as you can. Yes. And you said in uh, our kind of pre-conversation, uh, supplemented by grace and like just knowing that our Lord is at work all the time in you and that you're a representative of, of him. So that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Another thing that you said, Father, that was really interesting was that wearing the habit was, uh, or your pre your priest friend who was wearing a cassock, that moment was a um like could be a, like a transformative moment. Like you said, if you have the time and the context and everything. So just to kind of dive into the the 
the bulky part of this conversation. Um, the Norbertine habits are, there's a lot of elements that we haven't seen in the other habits that we've uh, talked about this week. Can we dive into your habit and the Norbertines and what elements are there and what they might mean if there's a, if there's a deeper meaning or prayer associated with it and the differences too, between what you wear and what the sisters wear. Um, although mm -hmm. y'all, you do look like you belong together. Like whenever you see a group of Norbertines, you know that they're Norbertines. So, um, yeah. Can we talk about that and maybe how any parts of your habit also highlight, uh, your the Norbertine charism. Well, yes. So again, I mentioned, you know, the the habit, the color of the habit was chosen by St. Norbert because of the connection to Easter Sunday and the angels of the resurrection. And so in that sense, we are kind of considered an Easter order. It's also the case that we were founded on December 25th. And so um oh. actually kind of at midnight on midnight mass basically. And so we're also a Christmas order. Um so there's that kind of uh connection of two major, major uh, feast days of our Lord. You know, since we're 900 years old and our habits can be kind of different, and that's because every abbey really was autonomous. And so, you know, the more modern orders tend to be provincial and have more centralized forms of government, whereas our orders had a lot more, I guess you could just say the, the local leadership. And so there was more, you know, diversity between um, and variety. Uh, of traditions. And so some of our abbeys uh, of men still have the medieval habits, which have large hoods, like that looks like a lot more like a Dominican's hood or a Benedictine or the Franciscans. Whereas my habit, I'll take this cape off, sometimes called the Kamai. Okay, we have like the modified. Uh, oh, Baroque. wow. So, you know, it's, um, you know, and so basically, some communities have sort of circular ones. Ours here in California have just like triangle and we pretty much almost starch it flat um you know but it's basically a hood again that's kind of a baroque modification and the places where the hoods shrunk it became more common to have those white box hats the berettas i sent you a few pictures with uh, uh norbertines uh wearing the beretta you know that hat in particular is sort of a symbol of like being learned and being a teacher so it's like a doctor's hat it's sort of like the uh the boards of uh, graduates, yeah, basically high school graduation or whatever. You'll see those in pictures, they're white. And in our order, we have four horns, so not just three, which is usually the case in most black Berettas that you see or or purple or red ones, but ours have four horns. Anyway, uh, that's that. Now, our cape though, also some capes are closed. Some Norbertine men don't use their capes at all. And then there'll be variations. So sometimes there'll be buttons on the scapular and other times there won't be buttons. And so uh, the scapula is both a symbol of the protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, but it's also a symbol of our um, um, our willingness to serve. Uh, in fact, we know we heard the gospel today that we have to be like servants with uh, our loins girt. You know, in our tradition, we actually have our scapulars um, tucked here, you know, with some sort of uh, cloth cincture, usually. Um, other Augustinians usually have a leather belt. Some communities have cords and we have these bands of fabric. And again, depending on the community, sometimes they'll be tied in a knot. This one is Velcro. So it's like, you know, it's uh, it's kind of noisy. And I remember once I, I lived in Rome for three years and I was able to serve both for St. John Paul II and for Pope Benedict XVI. And I held their microphone. And I remember once being in the little kind of quasi-sacristy area waiting for... Um, 
Pope Benedict to come in. And I was just praying with my eyes closed. And then it was pretty quiet in there. And then out of the blue, I heard Velcro. And it was the Pope. And he was getting dressed in his album. So he also wore a Velcro sash, <laughs> uh, a Those are modern uh, sort of uh, modifications to the habit. Um, one little thing. This habit doesn't have it, which is too bad, I don't think. Let's see. I have one, two, three, four, five. Six. And actually, we're good. we're good. This is one of my St. Joseph habits, scapulars. And so... You'll see this scapular. Sometimes uh, they, we have five buttons and some have six or however many. Um, I have seven on a lot of my, on almost all of my scapulars, actually. And the reason I have seven is in honor of the seven joys and sorrows of St. Joseph. Don't quiz me and ask me for all seven right this second or this 14th. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's because um, the order of nuns that taught me, uh, one of the orders that taught me in elementary school, uh, their old habits had a cord, but instead of having three knots, like, you know, Franciscans for poverty, celibacy, and obedience, they had seven knots for the seven joys and sorrows of St. Joseph. Oh, wow. And since Joseph is my baptismal patron, my first habit actually had seven buttons. And then I realized that not everyone's had seven. And so I just thought every time I had to have a new scapular made, I always had it uh, with seven. So um, anyway, um, so those are these little details. Um, another thing I learned when I was being vested they gave us sort of like spiritual signification which doesn't apply to every norbertine habit because some have closed capes but like ours we have the two wings here and then since we have a scapular uh, also the the two ends of the scapular the front and the back and then the sleeves were to symbolize the um six wings of the six wing seraph of isaiah uh, and so um it was kind of a reminder that when we go into um to choir, to pray, uh, that we should remember that we are kind of participating in the praise of angels and um, and to act accordingly with attention. That There's a lot of beautiful elements here that um, that's stuck out to me. The seven buttons reminded me of another conversation we had this week um, because you said it was your teachers that had this yes. cord with the seven knots. So mm -hmm. one thing that we were talking about, um, I was talking with a salt sister about, they're much newer. So they had to be formed underneath or like kind of under the umbrella of another um, religious community. And she was saying that um, some communities when they're like, when they're formed like under the umbrella of another community, um, there might be a visual element to, to indicate the spirituality or the way that they serve or their missionary apostolate or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so she was telling me about uh, an, another community that they were um, set of a Conte, but they yes. came, they came into communion with the church and the missionaries of charity were a part of that for them. So when they came into communion with the church, their habits um, were reflected with that, with a blue stripe yes. on, on the veil. So you saying that about. I've met a few of the sisters before. Yes. That's really cool. The kind of deeper reality that I, that visualized for me was that there's a, there's a sign of spiritual heritage and like spiritual family and DNA. This is kind of cool because this is like you, you, when you have to get a new scapular made, like you had the choice to do that, right? It's not like a, you I said didn't something. ask, but, uh, I actually, but <laughs> I just noticed that it was, it was, it was, it's not consistent. So in other words, there's some variety. Uh -huh. And, uh, and like I mentioned, I think if you look around different countries and different abbeys, there's a variety. You know, I think you can have, some might have five, six, seven, eight, or nine. For instance, our mother abbey has another variety. The communities that were in the Austro-Hungarian empire, most of them still have 
blue buttons and a blue sash. Oh. And, and that comes from uh, a, a, a privilege all throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire where all the religious orders, because of the uh, Marian devotion of the Empress, had blue added to their habits, whether oh, they wow. were Carmelites or Jesuits. Some have um, just kind of let those that privilege, which really came from a civil leader anyway, um, go. But um, when I was a younger um, member of the community, we still had several of our Hungarian founding fathers with us. And in their closets, they still had their, their blue sashes. In fact, one of them used to wear it kind of often, actually. So Aww. he still wore the blue. And when we get visitors, you'll still see some varieties. And that's one of them is some of the Norbertine priests and the Norbertine sisters still have elements of blue in their buttons or in their sash or piping uh, on the habit. Oh, that's cool. I like yes, that. There's <laughs> also heritage coming from different directions. Yeah. And, I, and the other element that I like that you pointed out was the um, the connection to the the seraph, the angels, um, and because there's a lot of music. I mean, there's a lot of singing in, and it's beautiful, by the way. I love going out there to the abbey. Is there anything else, any other elements that kind of highlight Norbertine spirituality in the in the habits, both for the priests um, and for the sisters? Well, I think you have a few photos with the us in our rochets or like our surplices, including the sisters, the canonesses. So there's um, many of the cloistered Norbertine sisters are canonesses. You know, we're canons, then you have canonesses and then the active sisters as well. And so in some of those communities of canonesses, um, not only in our order, other Augustinian canonesses, because of this focus on um, singing the divine office, the liturgy of the hours, which is like the extension of the, the mass throughout the day. The sisters, um, the female branches would also wear the rochets like the clerics. And so there's, I think you can probably pull up some of those pictures as well. And so that emphasis on, yes, singing and singing in church. Our charism is communio. Uh, and a charism is a gift, you know, from, from God. And it's a gift not only for even principally for the individuals who have the charism, but for the whole church. And our charism is communio, which is a twofold communion with God. First of all, expressed in our liturgical worship, because we are, uh, again, canons and canonesses. And so uh, that means we are committed to singing uh, the liturgy in the church, whatever church we might be professed to, and then to whichever church we might be mission when that's possible. But it's also communion with our brethren, with our neighbor, uh, those who are our neighbor because of our common life as Norbertines, but also the church at large. In fact, one of the titles of St. Norbert is the Angel of Peace, the Angelus Pacis. And one of his special gifts as an individual was actually bringing enemies into friendship again. Several of the miracles that, you know, we read about or hear about in his life, miracles of healing uh, to sight uh, in particular, but also um, bringing fragmented and warring peoples, uh, people who are in discord, bringing them together again. So there's that aspect of reconciliation um, as well, so that we have communio, even with those who have been estranged or marginalized or not been, been welcomed in that way. It's interesting, too, when we talk about charisms, because, um, you know, our charism Again, it's, it's communio, but I think it's always important for us as religious to, to remember that the charisms are gifts that are given, again, for the whole church. That's something that um, I think right now, uh, historically, many religious communities were 
more and more attentive to this fact that um, the gifts we have in our identity as Norbertines, for instance, or any other community, they're not given to us so that we can be just overly self-referential or, um, or just focused on ourselves, uh, but they're given to us so that we can actually um, embrace it, be grateful for it, uh, trying to be faithful to that, and then so that it might be shared with the whole church. I think that's a really important kind of, um, again, uh, a good consideration, you know, when we talk about the habits. You know, I have another funny story about habits, actually, from when I was a novice, and, and also ties in with this whole question of um, our our responsibility and our call as Norbertines to, to, you know, to sing the office solemnly in liturgy. We had had a series of really inspiring um, classes on the importance of, um, of our common prayer, our liturgical prayer. As a kind of closing um, consideration, um, our professor is a Norbertine. He says, now we've covered all this. He says, but remember, be humble. Be humble, he says, because he says the angels in heaven, he said the angels in heaven have to squint to see the difference between what we do when we're in habit and lace and singing in church and what any group of retired priests sharing an apartment wearing flannel, praying their rosary doing it. Because basically we're just Christians praying together, living together. Mm. And it's true, actually, in a certain sense. I mean, it's like, I mean, the the charism that we have um, is, you know, we could say in a particular way, it's, it's much more public. It has that, that very public role. But most of all, it's a public representation of what is interior. Uh, it should be. And so um, otherwise it's that kind of gospel um, sort of Pharisee whitewashed tombs. And so that's that's actually another consideration that uh, with all this white, you know, it's like it's uh, we should, with looking like angels, we have to actually make sure that, you know, with God's grace, we can actually be that way on the inside. Otherwise, we, we end this life when we have to change clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I want my my white robe for glory. It's like, well, good. So but yeah, so that's kind of another consideration. Our charism, I mean, and this is really, I think, as I look back to what inspired me to join, I had actually it was religious sisters, Carmelites, who um, that I met in, in a different state, who encouraged me to explore Norbertine life. I took the sisters' word um, and came on a visit, and really I just remember the, the the music actually really spoke to me. Men about my age, and they were you know relatively uh, kind and welcoming, and so it was an it was a fairly easy decision actually to embark on this life. This is for vocation week, you know, so I think it is a way to highlight um, just one particular charism of the church. People are listening maybe to discern what what God is doing in their life. And um, you'd kind of just naturally just brought up how how you discerned your vocation. And it just reminds me, too, that there's just no like solitary like path to heaven. Like I think all of us are joined by um, people in our life who, who help us along the way in different capacities. Like you were talking about your family, you were talking about the religious that you knew from school and um, your friends who were Carmelites who kind of introduced you. Um, yeah, Carmelites they... from out here in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's so yeah. awesome. I just think it's just so needed for us to, to recognize like how, God is just at work, just constantly, always. And what really spoke to me too is I didn't know what your charism, I, and even if you told me in the last conversation, I've just always associated 
y'all with music, like you're Dominicans or something. Like I know there's a Dominican order in Nashville that is a music, but you said the charism is communio. Communio, yes, communio. I mean, and so again, it's expressed principally in our liturgical prayer, especially Holy Mass. So like, you know, we're a Eucharistic order. You know, Pope Pius the 11th said that, um, he said, if you look at all the orders, he's like, the Franciscans have the Stations of the Cross, Dominicans have the Rosary, the Servites have the uh, Chaplet of Sorrows, he says, but the Norbertines have the Mass. Oh, uh, wow. Norbertines are the order which is gloriously Eucharistic and Eucharistically glorious. So that's kind of like the, you would say, like the central aspect of our communio. It's Eucharistic communio. Uh, it's communion with God himself. And then it kind of goes through the saints, especially, you know, again, we have like, you know, certain marks of our order, which is that we are Eucharistic and Marian in particular, uh, but also that we should sing the Psalms and we have care of souls and that we should also uh, daily have um, conversion of ways through penance and mortification. You know, so there's these marks, but basically that, but the, the charism as our constitution say, include those kind of five delineated, delineated elements under the heading of communio, because we're basically, it's, it's that union with God himself, sacramentally, prayerfully, liturgically, uh, and then in common life, and even to to those who are not yet believers, because, you know, we have to have a place in our hearts, um, even for those who don't know Christ, uh, even for those who rejected uh, the message of the gospel. So, yeah. I love that kind of like two, the two pillars, right? Because it's like Eucharistic first. So it's, it's first this you know, in high school, I think they did some sort of like up and down and then, then it has to go outwards and that makes the shape of the cross, right? That yes. both elements are, are needed, but like first and foremost, this relationship between the community and, or you as an individual and then the community with um, our Lord and especially through the mass, then saying, yes, that's important, but we don't like reject the things like of the world, or we don't reject um, anything that's not climbing this ladder or whatever to to heaven like we it's actually about being very intentional to bring in other people so that's that's very beautiful too I wanted to know if you wanted to speak about in our first conversation we you talked about like kind of the history of the Norbertine order and during the Gregorian reforms so yeah kind of just tying from from that point um, in history to how you are now and the prophetic witness of that and and what that means for the church you were kind of hinting at it sure yeah no that's true i mean yeah historically our order um was founded as part of the gregorian reform movement and that is a movement of um pope gregory that, where he just basically was trying to get um significant improvements we could say in the quality of life and holiness in the lives of clergy at the time. And, you know, the church is always reforming herself, especially in her clergy, but in all the members. And that just means we have to have this daily kind of reassessment because, you know, we turn away from uh, evil and from injustice. We follow God and then we get distracted or bored and we just change our minds. And so that happens to us as individuals. It happens to us as communities. And so we have to continually kind of refocus. That was kind of, there was a, some really major low points of widespread scandal among the clergy at the time our community was founded. And so the response was to kind of um, re-commit um, ourselves um, as a religious family, as Norbertines, also called premonstratensions, but that's a lot to pronounce, to the way of life of the apostles. So we're an apostolic life. That's why that whole point about 
monasticism. It's in, it's monasticism in the apostolic sense. It's monasticism in the sense of Acts chapter four, one heart, one mind on the way to God. Okay, we hold everything in common. We are trying to live the life of the apostles as a way of reforming clergy, of making uh, the life of uh, deacons, priests, and bishops holier. It's also kind of important to kind of focus on that, that whole kind of scriptural component, uh, the apostolic life. Because when we think about it, when the disciples were living you know, together, we also hear from the book of Acts that there was some road bumps and there was some drama. Okay, that's just from the beginning. And so that's something to kind of just factor in that um, God does not have to wait for perfect, perfect people in order to effect uh, real reform, real renewal. Okay. The other component is that when you consider the, the general mission of, of, the, of the apostles, but also the other disciples, I think one of the most important kind of details, not only the great commission that we hear after the ascension or at the ascension, after the resurrection, but also before in the gospels, when the 72 are sent out in St. Luke's gospel, um, that they are to go and stay in a house, eat what's put before them basically be good guest. That actually, I would say, is really also integral uh, and essential to any sort of idea of the Norbertine order as a reform order, um, which is to say um, we're not um, called by our founder. Uh, we're not called by Christ to, um, you know, affect clerical reform as like distant, better than everybody else sort of Priest. That's just not the reality. In fact, if you live with Norbertines, you would probably know. I think we all know that. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, um, but the point is like in the, in the gospels, the disciples were sent out to actually spend time with the people to whom they were sent. Mm. Okay. To share table, to share the lives. And that is the, that is the point of mutual transformation because, you know, when God sends out apostles and disciples to give um, this priceless treasure, which is the gospel and his own mystery, and his own power, um, he also wants there to be something given in return. You know, like when, I mean, we think God, God saves us by taking our own flesh. Okay, God comes to give us salvation, but he also wants to receive something from our human race when mm -hmm. he does it, so that there's an exchange. It is with us that it's a way of, of, of really recognizing the dignity of those to whom we are sent, even if we are offering something that they need that God gives them something that can benefit us, that we minister, um, we hope in effective ways to, you know, all clergy and the whole church by this charism, we actually receive as we give. So we give as best we can our charism as Norbertines or as any religious community, but that's give and take. Okay. So anytime we're giving something which is essential, we should also be thinking, well, what is God giving to us that I need from the people to whom I'm, whom I'm sent. So obviously, I think that's kind of really important um, to understand whenever we mention the Gregorian reform, because there can be a tendency when we think about reform movements of any type, whether it's like good people who are reforming the bad people or the corrupt people. Not only is it a little too black and white, it's just not what we hear about in the scriptures. It's not what we hear about in the gospels. It's really that God is at work in so many different ways. And, you know, St. Paul told the Thessalonians, I share with you not only the gospel, but my very life. So that's kind of like what we're ex expected to, to offer, our complete selves with all that entails, you know, the, the, you know, the good, the bad, and the, um, the in-between. It reminds me of a couple of things. So number one, uh, George Weigel in uh, his biography of John Paul II uh, 
um, mentions that the young adults that he worked with during his priest, his young priesthood, uh, a phrase that I just really love said something like, uh, he was with us in all things except sin. So he was really like a really a father and a shepherd. And even in his papacy made time for his young adults <laughs> that he knew from mm -hmm. his, his early priesthood. I want to say in 2013, um, at World Youth Day, Pope Francis said that it's important for shepherds to smell like their sheep in, in the sense that you're with your people, especially maybe I'm thinking of diocesan priests because I work at a parish, but like you, you be with, you're with your flock and you smell like the sheep. And at this most recent World Youth Day, Pope Francis said something really interesting that if we're kind of serving, like you, you're saying kind of as a prophetic witness or as a shepherd, it's not to look down, to look down on people, like you were saying, like from a place of being better than you. But he said, if you look down to anybody, it's that you take this posture to crouch down to, to lift them up. It's to wash their feet. Mm. I think that's one of the quotes, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're looking down at anyone, you should look all the way down to their feet to wash their feet. That's one of the, at least attributed paraphrases, I think, or yeah. quotes. I've been really reflecting on like priests as shepherds and like what that means, but also like just in leadership, like I'm not ever going to be a priest, but like to be in leadership, the kind of more that you're given and like the higher in a sense that you go in leadership, the lower you really need to go. Look at Christ and his leadership all the way up to the cross. Like he died. <laughs> so like the, the further in his ministry he got, he right lower and lower and lower gosh i lost my train of thought i actually had one more thing to say but it is gone not to interrupt you but actually i mean you mentioned this whole question it, 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 there's another connection if if we don't run out of time here i don't know if the zoom is going <laughs> to shut off this whole question of, of being a prophet because you've mentioned this a few times i might add because one of the components of religious life whether we're religious wearing habits or not is the prophetic witness you know because the, the lifestyle itself is prophetic the uniform can definitely help in terms of publicity and visibility, uh, but it's really what is is being lived. But I think, you know, when Christ says uh, there's one greater than a prophet here, that too is connected to his proximity to um, the people he came to save, which is not to slight in any way uh, the prophetic office of Old uh, or New Testament. There's an excellence to giving voice to a message, giving voice to what God is communicating um, to others. One of the main components of Christ saying uh, there's more than a prophet here is, first of all, he's God. Okay, so there's divinity. But besides that, not only is there divinity, there's proximity. Okay, and so when we uh, are meant to teach, um, again, this is kind of a, it's just a scriptural context, but it's also very Augustinian. Um, we teach by word and by example. And in order to teach by example, we have to be close by okay and so um that comes with some risk too because they may not always be that perfect example that christ gave um but even there you know like norbertines we profess to follow the rule of saint augustine another thing i learned in the bishop before i took vows is that we're augustinians but don't tell anyone you follow the rule of saint augustine say you promise to follow the rule of saint augustine and then on judgment day we'll all figure out whether we did it or not but anyway uh, <laughs> but one of the components of the rule of saint augustine is this whole question of um forgiveness and it says, you know, when you've been quick to offend, be quick to ask forgiveness. And then all of us should be quick to forgive. And I think one of the most beautiful, beautiful stories of any of the uh, Norbertine martyrs that we have, there were two martyrs we celebrated in July, James and Adrian, uh, who were martyrs of Gorkum, with, who were martyred actually with 
diocesan priests, Franciscans, Dominicans. So it's actually kind of an interesting historical episode of different religious communities and diocesan priests all just basically suffering for Christ together. One of those Norbertines had actually left the priesthood and left the church for a while. They were martyred, you know, during these antagonistic and, and violent interactions between uh, followers of the Protestant movements in the Low Countries. Again, one of the most beautiful things I think plays out in the life of St. James is that after he left the order and was and took a lot of parishioners, I mean, he was a very popular Protestant preacher. His father was a widower. He prayed for his conversion, reconversion back. Eventually he came back and he was given a penance by his abbot and the community of five years, which he suffered and endured. But afterwards, everyone said, he said, the community treated him as if he had done nothing wrong. And um, and I think that's really, really key because we celebrate these two Norbertine martyrs together. And you think, well, if that one, if he had had a community that did not have a spirit of forgiveness, he may not have come back. He may not have been martyred subsequently. Wow. And so I think it's really something, particularly for us now, because we, we have just a lot going on in the church right now in many different ways. Um, but if we think about the apostolic gift that we have you know this kind of uh calling it's really to be uh forgiving and merciful and and welcoming when there's the slightest sign of hope um and so we have to always be looking for that because i think to me it's just like i have to think about that like is you know am i contributing to my norbertine community being as forgiving as saint james community was and if we're not then we're risking losing the next Norbertine martyr, the next Norbertine saint like him. So anyway. That's beautiful. That was that was so rich. I love that story. St. James, you said. What was the other saint that was uh, the Norbertine one? Adrian and James. Adrian, Adrian and James. and James, the Norbertine martyrs of Corkham. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, their feast is July 9th. You can wow. see there's a famous picture, portrait of their martyrdom with others in the Vatican Museums, actually. Oh, wow. You're talking about St. Norbert's. Uh, miracles too of like bringing enemies into friendship as well and not that other religious communities are enemies but just that sometimes it's (laughs) sometimes it does feel that way historically but yeah just that true witness of the martyrdom like all those different groups of people is is so very beautiful so thank you for sharing that father thank you for that um perspective on the apostolic witness especially when you were talking about the proximity uh element I remembered actually what I forgot earlier, just reflecting on leadership in the church. You know, we're both from the Gulf Coast, so it's it's boots on the ground, right? Everyone knows that that kind of phrase for like yes. being involved and being there. And I think what I've witnessed in maybe like a, a little bit of a chasm in shepherding and leadership is that sometimes people want to be like boots on the top floor without being boots on the ground. That's my little Southern way of saying it is important to be with the people that you serve, to listen to them, especially like I'm in young adult ministry called student ministry you need to hear what not just hear but it's kind of like you just have to know you have to get to know people um, to be able to serve them and as someone not from Los Angeles that's something that I'm constantly kind of reevaluating like when I did student ministry in Louisiana it was different than doing student ministry in uh, here in Southern California so it's it's being with the people to know them and love them um, enough to to understand what what they need and to to kind of recognize it and then provide for them in a way that makes sense to them. So being able to kind of speak their language is is how I feel like I'm like learning how to speak um, to my young adults and to my college students. So thank you for that um, that perspective on the apostolic witness. That was really beautiful. 
just as we wrap up the conversation, Father, are there any uh, closing thoughts that you want to share on the Norbertine charism, your experience discerning even just any words of encouragement to those um, who are listening and watching who are uh, discerning a religious vocation or another form of consecrated life? Oh, I mean, I think there's so much, I would say just probably generic, but very important counsel would be to be recommitted to daily prayer, to balance that as, you know, quiet prayer, uh, meditation, contemplation, but also some sort of vocal prayers, you know, whether it's the mass or the rosary, both. And then also to, at the same time, to really um, find some way to be intentional and, um, and committed to daily acts of service. And that kind of varies depending on, you know, your state of life. I mean, if you, you know, if there's someone who still lives at home, uh, it can definitely be uh, focused on being helpful with your immediate family, but it could also be being helpful to neighbors, to someone, but just to really be intentional about service. Uh, I think those components would be the most important practical as we, anyone discerns religious life and also as a sort of immediate preparation to entering religious life, because that's basically what we could say our, our life is, it's a life of prayer, union with God in prayer, and and sort of a selfless life of service where we're, we're looking to, you know, to God and to others more than we're looking to ourselves. So I think if if that's the context of our discernment, it will help us to to make the right decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Can you also close us in a prayer? Sure. Yes. And I, and thank you for inviting me. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. O God, uh, through the intercession of your glorious and ever-Virgin Mother, Mary Most Holy, she who is our life, our sweetness, and our hope, and your own smile, the manifestation of your mercy and your fidelity to us here on earth. May you who are our almighty and all-loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon each and every one of us gathered virtually right now and in the future. Bless all those whom we love, all who love us. Bless even any of our enemies of whatever kind and remain with us forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Father, for your time and for your, and your you, insight Krista. here. We appreciate you. I look forward to driving up to visit you uh, up in Pasadena soon. Yes, that'd be awesome, Father. Thank you. Take care.